All right, it's time for round two of the five years of the Cardio Shield Conversation Series. And today's guest is no stranger to this program, a man that has done very well for himself. He is the owner, operator, founder, uh, host, director of ArishaPiro.ca. We're just waiting for him to get his ass out of bed and get online. And uh, we'll get this thing done. In the meantime, um, obviously last night I had the privilege of speaking to Jesse Goldberg Strassler. And uh, again, another great interview. Jesse and I talked about pretty much how his 2019 is going and his experience in spring training. It was a great story about uh, Scotty Mack. So uh, that was really awesome. So we're just waiting for Shapiro to get his act together and join me. And uh, we'll be right back. Alright folks, he is here, he is up, he is ready to go for his Monday morning. He is the owner, the operator, the founder of RHShapiro.ca, you can hear him on the Jay's Journal podcast, and most recently he's got a cool little segment I want you to check out called Take 5. You might have, you might find an episode with me in it, you might not. Here he is, Ari Shapiro, Mr. Shapiro, welcome to Monday, thanks for coming back to the program. Mr. Cardi, you might be the only person on the planet get me at night in the morning to do a podcast. Really? I don't know any I don't know anyone else who would. Are you kidding me? None of your your friends at T S N radio or Sportsnet 650, 960, 1275 can get you? Well, not unless excessive amounts of money are involved really. Ah, ah. But in your case it's just the opportunity to celebrate what has been a very, very cool tradition that you've been doing with your show. So thanks for having me on. I'll pl- oh, thanks for coming on. Pleasure's always mine. Hey look, um we got to talk about some politics because uh, one of the things with that I love about you is that you're an expert in almost everything I know: um, architecture, uh, interior design, politics, sports. And let's talk about politics because it's coming up. Uh, the federal election is coming up, and uh, I don't know about you, but all I'm seeing in my Twitter timeline is Andrew Scheer calling for Justin Trudeau to still resign uh, two months before the election. And uh, Justin Trudeau saying, I'm great, I'm Justin Trudeau. Um, Honestly, Ari, I feel hopeless. I I think all three leaders of these political parties, the NDP, PC, and Liberals, well, they're they're clueless. I think they're a bunch of clowns. I I don't feel confident. I'm not leaning anywhere. I'm leaning almost to abstaining from voting. Um, Ari, give these people some hope. What are you thinking? I think the very fact that you've come to the conclusion that you may not vote or feel somehow disinclined to vote is perhaps the most stunning indictment of how these leaders have failed Canadians yeah. as a whole. Yeah. Because, you know, as someone like myself, and, and I know in your case, being Canadians and having voted in multiple federal elections and, and provincial elections and trying to be model citizens, good citizens, you know, you want to participate in the political process for shapes and sculpts the kind of country that we end up with. I think it is it, it is increasingly sad for me to witness how the confidence that the average citizen has in their political leaders has so horribly eroded as to get to the point where there's just general apathy. And it's interesting because you know me as someone who is regarded as a subject matter expert when it comes to certain sports or looking at the, the world of sports and using things like statistics and analytics and stuff that we can really 
as empiricists look at and decide whether something is good or bad, whether someone is playing well or whether someone needs to go down to the minors. What a sad reality that we can't do that with politicians. You know, that, that they don't have trading cards that we can look at or that we can't go to like ESPN politics and look at who's trending and who's not. Because then at least we can have like this awesome barometer to work with to understand whether a politician is doing his or her job. Sadly, though, if we did have those kind of indicators, we'd look at them and say, send them all down. Like, we don't need them on our on Team Canada. Because you're absolutely right. There, there, There's a real disconnect and, and a real lack of proper messaging and, and value systems that citizens can understand about these politicians. Sheer, perhaps, is the worst of the three by virtue of being someone who's trying to win essentially on contrarianism and positioning himself as a complainer. As someone who says, hey, look, this guy's doing poorly. Justin can't get the job done, so you... Which is about the worst possible argument I've ever heard for deciding on anyone in any relationship, I don't care, political or otherwise. How anyone could think that it's an attractive alternative to be given the privilege of leading this country without having a platform, a discernible, identifiable, value-oriented political platform is everything you need to know about the nature and character of the person. And I, I constantly argue with many associates and friends and family over the fact that Justin Trudeau may be a flighty, overreaching, overly ambitious politician in his own right, but at least he's trying to address progressive and presumably productive elements for Canadians. Shear's not doing that at all, and yet it's very likely he could become the next Prime Minister of this country. So to your point, the very fact that people are not voting for what is important to them, but more along the lines of what sound bites or media-oriented information gives them a reason to like or dislike a candidate is incredibly alarming in 2019. It's, it's a realization that politics will never be the same. And Brent, let's stop talking ideology, because this, this ain't about left or right anymore. This isn't about understanding whether you're a progressivist or traditionalist. To me, this is a battle between stone-cold populism and a level of identity politics which has crushed anybody who believes in compromise and being in the middle. And that's a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. I just want to clear up one other thing is that you can go to the polls and you can tell the electoral official that you are abstaining from voting. Um, that is, uh, they will still count that as somebody who came out to the polls, from my understanding. So, um, but that's a pretty sad statistic, isn't it? it yeah. If you, have a high if you have a high threshold of people who decide to throw up their hands and say, none of these people are, are worthy of my vote, now you understand why populism is so insidious in nature. Yeah. Because it is, a, it, is, it is the veritable definition of giving up and choosing the worst of all evils. That's a horrible way to choose a political future. Oh, yeah. By simply saying, you know what, I'm going to go with the guy who least irritates me and says the most amount of pretty things. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I just, I can't, can't think of going to the polls and, you know, going eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Because, I mean, all three guys are just unbelievably out of touch they live in a bubble um and it's not just them i think it's their parties as well um yeah it's it's a terrible time in politics and uh i'm with you a hundred percent on what you're saying let's uh look to uh let's look to sports for a second obviously uh i don't want people to turn turn off the uh the podcast if they hate politics but Let's talk about the Toronto well, Blue Jays. I, th I think you lost about forty percent of your audience with my shoe. Oh, nah, it's all good. It's, oh, that's fine. It is. And, and, what the, it is. and the other forty percent went with Trudeau. So I haven't, I haven't criticized the NDP yet. So we'll keep that as a potential audience. Yeah. 
<laughs> the city of London, the NDP uh, NDP capital of Ontario. Uh, they love it. <laughs> Let's talk about the Toronto Blue Jays for a second. Um, obviously, going back to the trade deadline, not everybody loved the moves, uh, and and that's fine. It is what it is. Do you think the criticism of Mr. Atkins and Mr. Shapiro are fair for the moves, or do you think the criticism should be about the way their public relations are being handled? Only you can find a way to segue from politics to the Blue Jays and try to convince me that we're somehow talking about a more cheerful subject. <laughs> we're not. We're, we're actually going to another level of sad sack reality. Uh, and, and listen, your questions are fair, but to me, they become a real flashpoint for the way that a lot of Blue Jays fans reconcile how they look at this organization. You know me traditionally to be someone that has been critical of Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins, specifically because I feel that the way that they've managed this club from day one has been a real, real disaster. I, I think there's very little for me to find redemption and hope in their leadership style and approach. And the reason I remain savagely critical at times is because I have long accepted, like you and many other Blue Jays fans, that a rebuild was coming. And that inevitably when a rebuild would happen, that there would be grow, quote, growing pains, right? But to me, a lot of the problems and experiences the Blue Jays have faced have more to do with pissed poor player asset management and less to do with whether or not you agree with the trade. Yeah. Because you're, you're not always going to agree with the trade. You will always find a reason to say to yourself they should have zigged when they zagged. They should have targeted this player instead of that player. But one of the things that this regime has done that Alex Anthopoulos never seemed to do, and Alex did, listen, if we record the number of trades Alex Anthopoulos actually had as an aggregate amount and look at what he did, there's no shortage of activity. Nor are there individuals who criticized legitimately some of the things Alex Anthopoulos did. But Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins came into a very unique situation which required them to delicately, delicately figure out how to handle the incredibly awesome pixie dust power that was generated by Alex making the moves that he did in 2015. You don't have to agree with how he did it. A lot of people don't. A lot of purists I deal with who are part of the sabermetrics and analytics community and understand minor league baseball were appalled at what he did. You know, you often hear... Uh, the criticism that he shouldn't have traded every organizational left-hander in order to get a shot at making the playoffs. Well, we know we know one thing. We know that as a result of whatever moves he made, he changed the baseball landscape in Toronto. He made it so you and I and countless fans were saying to themselves, baseball is the sport, and I want to go down to the dome, and I want to buy myself an overpriced beer and hot dog, and I want to sit in those old retro seats that are now like three decades old, and I want to watch competitive baseball. And it was good, and it was wonderful, and we embraced it for that window in 2015 and 2016. But when this organization, the ownership group, decided that we need to get frugal and we need to scale back and build this team properly, it was, it was almost as if they forgot that they were in the middle of a real phenomenon, that being a return to 40,000-plus fans showing up and watching worthwhile baseball. And they completely got rid of that. Like, holistically, they completely broke it into smithereens and decided... Let's stop spending, let's stop acquiring players, let's just build these prospects. And every time we embarrass ourselves in the field, we will justify it by saying that we're, quote, in a rebuild. Now, Cardi, you're a savvy baseball man in your own right that I enjoy speaking with, so you know there are never any guarantees with prospects. No. And when you don't make an effort to spend on your product, how in God's name can you justify people to keep coming out to watch a minor league product paying major league prices? 
right? Like there, there are no amounts of loony hot dogs and cheap undersized beer that requires you to line up for 45 minutes to miss two and a half innings that can justify the way that they've approached this organization financially. Their actualized payroll, my good man, this year, right now as we speak, is $31 million. They had twice the amount of retained salary paying people like Russell Martin and Troy Tulowitzki to play elsewhere than they do for their own players. That's why I'm very frustrated with this regime, because I simply believe they could have done it differently. They could have spent and been frugal. They could have rebuilt while having better players to give fans a reason to see a transition. Instead, we have this, I called it a carnival freak show on TSN last week. We have a carnival freak show of a team that you can show up once a week to see them do really well and score 17 runs, but most of the time they're losing by eight and they're playing horrific lack of fundamental baseball that makes me very sad to see how far they've fallen. Do you think that Atkins actually has a plan? Because you look into his eyes when he's being interviewed and people are taking him to task and God bless him for doing it. He looks like he has a plan. He, you know, you ask him, okay, Ross, I mean, you're getting this guy, you're getting that guy, you know, but fans want to know, you know, what's the plan down the line? Are you convinced that Ross is the right guy at the helm? I think Ross has a plan to have lunch today. That's about the only plan I think he has. I think he has a plan in terms of what he might even have for dinner if we really want to go long-term and, and dare, to, dare to dream. I, I don't know whether he has a plan, but my instincts tell me that a lot of what he's doing is a fly-by-your-seat conjecture, which seems to be amplified by the double corporate double-speak that we experience as fans. Like, that's not my imagination. That's not an opinion. Any of your listeners who appreciated what I just said will understand that as they're nodding their head, yeah, that's true. I mean, this organization, as you said earlier, do I think they have a public relations issue? I don't think they have public relations, period. I think they don't know how to reach out to the fan. You know, we're, we're a sensitive type here in Toronto. When you win a world championship back-to-back in 92-93, and then you go, what, 22-23 years without playoff competition, and then you tease your fans for basically a window that lasts a grand total of a year and a half before scuttling it again and telling them, well, patting them on, their, uh, on the heads and saying, hey, just be patient, it'll happen again soon, that doesn't fly for me. This is, what, the third or fourth largest baseball market in the world? This is one of the most cosmopolitan cities on the planet that has one singular Canadian franchise representative representing 37 million people, and you want to try to tell me that this is all part of a grand master plan? I don't think so. I think a lot of this is fly by the seat of your pants shenanigans because the Blue Jays have no pitching. If you had asked me that I think he has a plan and shown me some evidence of pitching both in the minors and currently in our across our system and forging towards the majors, then I could say that. But there's no evidence for me to do that. Outside of the core, the great core, partially forged by Anthopolis himself, of Guerrero Jr., Bichette, Guriel, Biggio, which half of them now are on the DL, tell me again why I should go see the Blue Jays if I'm a fan. Tell me again why I should believe in an organization when I've got to rest my hat on Nate Pearson as the great salvation. When I've got to look at Ryan Baruki, who himself can't pitch now, and say that that's part of the pitching future. This is a very, very embarrassing, bad baseball team. And no amount of social media normalization or this ridiculous sad sack syrupy, you know, rose-colored glasses marketing effort made by the organization will convince me that they know what they're doing. So to answer your question, good sir, it's an unequivocally, un, you know, resounding no. With, with Ari Shapiro from ArishaPiro.ca, um... I talked to Jesse Goldberg-Strasser last night, as you know, and uh, I asked him about the high-performance department. 
or asked him, my question was, you know, have you seen anything different uh, since Atkins and Shapiro taken over? His answer was the high performance department. In your opinion, and you just mentioned all these injuries and all some regression with certain players uh, that continue to go back on the IL, uh, guys like Baraki, guys like Anthony Alford, Dalton Pompey. Do you think the high performance department is failing this club? And you mentioned uh, the 200 innings. I mean, we could get to a point, I would say it was in the next 12 to 24 months, that a team has 14 relievers or 14 openers slash relievers. You might, the uh, definition of a starting pitcher, I mean, it's changing, right? I mean, you'll see some bulk guys that can go three, four, five innings, but the way the game is being played now, I mean, it's totally different. Baseball is a, a game that evolves on its own, it doesn't need a commissioner or a, a group of owners and investors trying to change it. That's well said. That's true. You don't need all these different fingers in the pie trying to decide whether or not it should be cooked a certain way or whether it needs to change the ingredients, you know, the composition, the way that people um, understand how it works. I mean, it is an inherently lazy argument to say that when something doesn't work, we can simply put it robot umpires or we can put in clocks or we can put in 
uh, certain positional justifications if you're a catcher or the way you slide into a base. The last few years, I think, have demonstrated that it hasn't helped the game. It hasn't increased attendance. Quite frankly, it's done the opposite. It's a very, very boring, listless game. It's become a one-dimensional game. And as someone who's a, a, a self-professed purist who grew up under the, the glory of a Wade Boggs and a Tony Gwynn and a Kirby Puckett and, and watched a Vince Coleman and a Ricky Henderson do what they do on the bases and enjoyed a Nolan Ryan who was the hardest-throwing pitcher in baseball but somehow always find a way to touch 300 innings or more, I'm sorry, the evidence is there. You don't have to have the game constructed in this matter to attract people. you got to go back to the basics of what made it so wonderful in the first place, which is the minutia, which is the nuances associated with what, what you do as a manager when you have a runner at first or a runner at third, or whether you're trying to stop somebody from scoring in a pressure situation, or whether you want to create havoc at the plate by getting into the kitchen of the, of the pitcher. All that seems to be gone. Now we've reached a point where analytics pretty much dictate everything, which is why we see absurd shifts, which is why we see players swinging so hard with their eyes closed and striking out. I mean, how many 280 on-base percentage players can you afford on a team, Brent? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely laughable to me that the Blue Jays, when you watch them, like, you look at yesterday in their shutout loss, what was it, I think 7 nothing. They, they had no idea what they were doing at the plate yesterday. It was just, uh, let me pick up this piece of wood and hope that if I swing it hard enough, something interesting will happen and people will cheer. Well, that to me is a desecration of what baseball is. It wasn't meant to be that way. The reason we had a golden era was not just because everything has a golden era in life, but because you learn from it, so you take the best parts of it and make it into a better product for the fans. And baseball has failed its fans. Hockey has not. Basketball, basketball definitely hasn't. Those sports have learned from the past and adjusted the game to make it better. But they've done it by improving the relationships with the players in their league and not with dismantling the way the game is traditionally played. And baseball has really, in that regard, failed miserably under Commissioner Rob. A couple... And the, and, the, and the failed union leadership of Tony Clark. Oh. Yeah, let's give him some credit to Yeah, there's a strike coming for sure. A couple more before I let you uh, get back to bed. Um, talk to me about Marner. If Marner doesn't sign and the Leafs have another craptacular playoff... Who goes first, Dubas or Babcock? I think Babcock's gone in that situation. I think Dubas is the anointed man of the future. I think being younger, <coughs> human, a younger human being who's become a product of the way that uh, Brandon Shanahan is looking forward to constructing a successful hockey team, the fall guy will become Babcock. I I like Mike Babcock from day one. I enjoy everything he's done in hockey. When he signed him, I was excited. But I'm sorry, this is now the fifth year of a seven-year plan where he's making a gazillion dollars. Yeah. Like the man, the man is literally getting paid like a duke living somewhere in a Belgian castle. And no matter what he seems to do, this team finds a way to lose when it matters most. How many times can you choke in the first round? So to answer your question, yes. If if the Maple Leafs cannot show an improvement both in the regular season and in what they can do in the playoffs this year, then you give Sheldon Keefe a chance. You give the minor league coach who's already familiar with this amazing nucleus of players. You know what I would do, Cardi? I would turn the loose. This Maple Leafs team is pound for pound one of the most talented, agile, quickest team in the National Hockey League. They should not be worried about whether or not they can play effective defense at this stage of the game. They should be possessing the puck. We know this is the era of puck possession. The best defense is a rapier sharp offense. And this and this Maple Leafs team has the three musketeers element about it that they can go out and conquer a few you know, villages if you let them run 
wild and do their, their thing like the Seven Samurai. You cannot expect them this year to to have the kind of season where Mike Babcock sits back and tries to micromanage everything and then you wonder why he stumbled the first round. This team has to be allowed to unfurl its wings and really fly as high as it can. And then based on its talent, again, which I think pound for pound is in the top three or five in the NHL, especially with their new offensive defenseman that they added, Tyson Berry. I think the sky's the limit if they control the puck and force the play rather than worry about impressing their uh, incredibly now slowly antiquated coach. Why the hell does this team need another offensive defenseman? I mean, don't they have enough? Like, why not get a defensive defenseman? Isn't that ironic that Kyle Dubas keeps adding offensive-oriented players, yet Mike Babcock keeps preaching defense? Like, it's some kind of weird manipulation of fan sensibilities to think that they're taking players who play it, who are rooted in playing a game a certain way, and they're trying to make them to buy into the system. This nonsense has to stop. As much as I like the idea, obviously you need to be a defensive-oriented team if you want to win the playoffs. But you know when you win in the playoffs? When you have home ice advantage. That's when you win in the playoffs. And if you really look at the last three years of first-round exits, if the Maple Leafs found them playing, set themselves playing an offensive style of game, I guarantee you two of those three, three series wouldn't have even gone seven games. Yeah. You've got to let them do what they're built to do. And, I mean, look at the top six forwards alone this year. With the addition of Kapanen and Janssen to the top six, you have six of some of the most smartest, fastest, agile players you can hope to have driving your special teams, driving your transitional game. So if you're going to have a Jake Muzzin and a Tyson Berry and a Morgan Riley, let them carry the puck up and bring it to those forwards, and you're going to win games 5-1, to 6-2. Yeah, you might lose the occasional close game because you're going to get beaten by a better defensive compartmentalized team, but I'm sorry, if you're a cheetah, don't prepare to, don't pretend to be a polar bear. Just do your thing. What's next for Ari Shapiro in AriShapiro.ca? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question because some days I'm not even sure myself. Hmm. But I do know this. I do know that I've got some great interviews on the horizon with more sports personalities, uh, various classical authors now. I'm starting to look at not only historians and technologists and politicians because I believe that there are great stories to be told in our struggle for the human condition today. So if you uh, if you have an opportunity for yourself and your listeners to keep checking in on me, you'll find that there are all sorts of exciting articles and podcasts. And I'll be doing a lot of YouTube material now because I want to show off my beard. I feel it's quite lustrous and needs to be seen. So, I, I, I cannot wait for that. I cannot <laughs> wait for that. Ari Shapiro, thank you very much for your time on this busy Monday morning. My pleasure, Mr. Cardi. Congratulations on 500 episodes. Well done. And that's Ari Shapiro. I'm Brent Cardi. Have a great Monday. We'll talk to you on Wednesday.